Good morning. Welcome to Peninsula Bible Church Cupertino. My name is Grace Kwame, and I'll be your host today. I'm thankful to be here. All right, the call to worship today comes from Psalm 145, and we'll be reading it antiphonally, which means that I'll read one line and then you read another, which is how Hebrew poetry was originally read. Okay, let's begin. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name Every day I will praise you. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can have. One generation commends your works to another. The Lord is good to all. All your works praise you, Lord. They tell of the glory of your kingdom, so that all people may know of your mighty acts. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises. And together, my mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Dear Father God, we thank you that you go before us and the battle does belong to you and that you already have the victory. And that is so reassuring. Um, I think of those who are depending on themselves and I can't think how they can go through life that way. And I just thank you that um, you have a plan for us, a wonderful plan and um, that you desire for us to walk faithfully in it and see how you work in our lives. At this time of the year, I think of the students and teachers who are going back to school, and I ask that you would be with them especially now. Give them strength and courage and help them to be a light wherever they are, that they might be a fragrance, pleasant fragrance amongst those who don't know you and we ask that you would give them a special blessing um, for their communities, that it would be a great start this year and um, give them protection from the evil one. Pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now as we move on to the sermon, um, let me read from Revelation 5, which will hopefully usher us into the heavenly throne room. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. 
They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Bernard, will you come and tell us more about this lamb? Thank you. Well, good morning. After reading uh, verses like that, I feel uh, we should pray. So let's uh, do that. Oh God, our gracious Father, we thank you for this vision into heaven that uh, is given to John there of seeing the heavenly throne room, uh, you as God Almighty exalted, receiving the praise of all creation, and then the lamb that was slain, they're also standing on the throne, receiving praise and adoration and worship and being acclaimed as being worthy of worship because uh, he had given himself, um, he was slain and has accomplished redemption to win us back to you and restore us to fellowship with you. Father, I pray that as we uh, turn to the scriptures now that you would open our eyes to see the Lord Jesus Christ in glory at your right hand to see you and that our response would be the same as those in Revelation, uh, to fall at your feet in worship, uh, in adoration, in awe, and in great thanksgiving. Uh, may your spirit uh, give us understanding today of what we read and what we hear. May your blessing be upon us as we turn to your word. If we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Well, on the first uh, Easter Sunday, two discouraged Jesus followers were walking along the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they were deep in conversation. And a stranger drew alongside and asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they were surprised and replied, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? So these two companions walking along had been trying to make sense of these recent events, of the crucifixion of Jesus, and of breaking reports that very morning that his tomb was now empty. The stranger set them straight. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, that could have been a long explanation. They had uh, seven miles to walk, so probably a little over two hours. Uh, and yet, through all that time, the two companions did not recognize the stranger. When they reached their destination in Emmaus, they invited the stranger in, stay with us. And so he went in to stay with them. And then at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and was giving it to them. And only then did they recognize the stranger as being Jesus. And then he immediately vanished. And it was then that they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And immediately they hurried back to Jerusalem to tell the others. So the hearts burned when Jesus opened the scriptures to them. 
And he explained what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And these scriptures were Israel's scriptures, Moses and the prophets. And then seven weeks later, on Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the believers in Jerusalem, Jesus was empowered to preach his first sermon. And he began, this is that which was spoken by the prophet. This is that. And as he continued his sermon, under this, he included the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, his exaltation to God's right hand, and the gift of the Spirit. From God, through Jesus, to them. Death, resurrection, ascension, and the gift of the Spirit. These four events constitute this. And this, Peter says, equals that. That which was spoken by the prophet. That which was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And the transition from that to this marks the arrival of the last days. Now, Peter was able to put the two together, the old and the new, the former word and the new word, what God said in the prophets and what he has now done in the Son. Peter could not have done that the previous day. It required the gift of the Spirit to see that that is this. Now, the writer to the Hebrews does a similar thing in his opening chapter. This is that. And in his magnificent opening sentence, the first four verses that we've spent the last two Sundays looking at, he has introduced two major themes of his work, of his sermon. First, God has spoken. God spoke in the past to ancient Israel through the prophets, and now he has spoken in his son. Secondly, the son has become superior to the angels and has inherited a better name. He was exalted to this superior status and name at his ascension, when he sat down at God's right hand on David's throne, when he received the great name promised to David and is now Lord. And the author now brings these two themes together, showing how the superior status of the son to the angels is in fulfillment of that which God spoke of old. It is in fulfillment of Israel's scriptures. So it is his own way of saying, this is that, just like Peter. That is what God had spoken long ago to ancient Israel by the prophets. That's verse one. This is what God has spoken in his son. That's verse two. And they are connected as promise and fulfillment. As St. Augustine said long ago, referring to the two testaments, the two halves of scripture, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. So our author shows how that is fulfilled in this, and he does so using a string of seven quotations from Moses and the prophets, the same source that Jesus used on the Emmaus Road. And by Moses, we mean the first five books of Israel's scriptures, Genesis through Deuteronomy, what the Jews call Torah, what we call the Pentateuch. Uh, and uh, this is Israel's birth narrative, as it were, how uh, Israel was born in the, 
in the birth and the promise to Abraham and how God brought them out of Egypt. And it uh, ends with them on the edge of the promised land about to enter in. And in these seven quotations, we have one from Moses, one from the book of Deuteronomy. And then the prophets is a more comprehensive term than we normally think. It does include the classical prophets, but it also includes Israel's history after the death of Moses through until the exile from the land. So Israel entering and living in the land and the history about that included in Samuel, Joshua Judges, Samuel and Kings is prophetic history. It's in the prophets section of the Hebrew Bible. It's the prophet's take of that history. Uh, and uh, one quotation, one of these seven quotations will be from that history, from 2 Samuel. And then the other five quotations are from the Psalms. Now when it comes to the Psalms, David, the Psalmist, is considered a prophet. He is speaking God's word. These seven quotations can be taken in three blocks, each beginning with a reference to the angels. And each block contrasts the angels with the sun, showing the superiority of the sun. Now, the first group is the first three quotations, and it's linked by again and again as an introduction to second and third. The first two concerning this concern the sun and are contrasted with the third, which concerns the angels. So, the first two about the sun, and uh, as I read these texts, I invite you to join in and read with me the Old Testament quotations. So Hebrews 1, verse five. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. So the initial question is rhetorical, expecting the answer none. God has never said of the angels what he says of the son. Now the first quote here is from Psalm 2 verse 7, the second is from 2 Samuel 7 verse 14, and I read both of those last week because they lie behind God's appointment of the son as the heir of all things, as we saw in verse two. And in 2 Samuel 7, God promised David a son who would be king, who would build God a house for his name and with whom God would enter into a father-son relationship. And this relationship was inaugurated at the coronation and enthronement of the king in Jerusalem. And that is the today of the Psalm 2 quote. Today came for Solomon when he was crowned king. And then today came for each of his dynastic successors uh, at their coronation, and so for many generations. But after Judah went into exile, there had been no king. For 600 years, there had been no Davidic heir on the throne. There had been no today. So was the promise dead, along with Solomon and Hezekiah and Josiah the kings that particularly aroused Israel's hope that this verse would be fulfilled permanently. Well, as our author connects what God spoke in the past and what he has spoken in his son, he is confident that today has arrived. The today to which war all the previous todays had pointed. The last days had arrived 
And at his ascension, the son sat down at God's right hand as the true king in fulfillment of these two texts. He who had always been the son from before creation was now installed as the son in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. David's true heir was on the throne and of no angel did God ever say this. So what did God say concerning the angels? Verse six. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So this third text is the one from Moses, from Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. And when said long ago, it called the angels to worship God. But the text now speaks into a new situation. When God brings his firstborn into the world. Now, the firstborn is the son, it's the heir. So when did God bring him into the world? Was it at the incarnation? Or was it at the ascension? Or is this yet future at the parousia, at Christ's return? So all three of those have been proposed. Now, the son did enter the world at the incarnation, but the world that's translated here world is not the usual word uh, for world. It's not gay uh, or cosmos. It's the word oikumene, which has a bit of a different range of meaning. And I think it's best in the context here to take that as being God's realm where he has installed his king. It's the realm of God's kingdom. It's where he has installed the firstborn as heir. So this is yet another reference to the son's enthronement at God's right hand. It's another reference to today when the Davidic covenant was fulfilled. And what do Israel's scriptures say concerning this day? Let all God's angels worship him. So this ancient text still speaks, but now with reference to the exalted son. Now, the fundamental divide in the universe is between creator and creature, established in the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So on one side is God the creator, eternal from before the beginning of time, and on the other side is everything else, the creation, which had a beginning. And it is appropriate for the creation to worship its creator. And as we read in our call to worship, all your works praise you, Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. The eternal son is on the side of creator. The angels are on the side of creation, though they are heavenly beings. And the one whom they are now called to worship is the newly exalted son. The one who for a little while was, had been made lower than the angels, but is now crowned with glory and honor. He is the eternal son who had taken on humanity and did not put off that humanity when he sat down at God's side, having become as much superior to the angels as superior to them the name he has inherited. And it is fitting for the angels to worship him. Now our scripture reading from Revelation 5 showed the lamb standing at the center of the throne in heaven, receiving the praise, adoration, and worship of all the heavenly creatures. The four living creatures, that's the cherubim, the 24 elders, and an enormous multitude of angels. 
Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then the choir grew even larger, encompassing every creature everywhere, in heaven, on earth, under the earth, in the sea, and the entire creation sang to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Let all God's angels worship him, the exalted and enthroned son. The angels never worshiped human beings, but now they worship the risen Lord Jesus Christ. How much more should those who have laid hold of so great a salvation in Jesus worship him? And so Christians worshiped God and they worshiped the risen Jesus. This was not something added later. It was something they did from the very beginning. As soon as they realized what had happened in the enthronement of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. As soon as they started calling him Lord. The name, the title attached to God in the Old Testament. And it started with Jewish Christians. They worshiped Jesus while holding on to their firm conviction that there is only one God. And then as Gentiles were added to the church, they did so as well. And this was shocking for non-Christians. How can you worship one who has been crucified? One who has suffered the most shameful death possible, who's been publicly humiliated. One who has been rejected by all, by Jew and Roman alike. But the scriptures are clear. The one who has been so scorned, rejected, humiliated, and utterly shamed is the one whom God has crowned with glory and honor and seated at his right hand. He is therefore worthy of worship, of our worship. He is worthy of our worship despite the shame that he endured. No, he is worthy of worship because of the shame he endured in our place. He experienced death so we might be set free liberated to become sons and daughters also. The eternal son has returned to the glory which he had with the father from the beginning and he took with him into God's presence the humanity that he had put on to become like us. The risen Lord Jesus Christ has entered into the fullness of God's glory and we worship him. We worship God and we worship the risen and exalted Son. And yet still, Christianity remains a monotheistic religion. One of the great monotheistic faiths. We worship one God, God the Father, God the Son. So that's the first block of text. The enthroned Son is he whom angels worship and whom we worship also. Moving on to the second block of three texts, verses seven through 12, the first two contrast what God says of the angels in verse seven and what he says of the son, verses eight and nine. So the fourth quotation is from in verse seven. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. So here the text that is quoted is from Psalm 104, verse four. This is a psalm of praise to God as creator, 
And as creator, he uses various elements of his creation for his purposes. He sends winds and flames of fire, which can herald a theophany, a manifestation of the presence of God. Similarly, he sends his angels. They are his servants or ministers sent out to accomplish his purposes. But the son is different. He remains seated on God's throne as shown in the fifth quotation from Psalm 45, verses six and seven, verses eight and nine. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Psalm 45 is a wedding psalm celebrating the king. And the psalmist uses exalted language, even addressing the king here as God. Now this language was never realized in Solomon with all of his flaws, nor in any subsequent king in Jerusalem. But it has been realized in the eternal son. He has been throned to an eternal rule. And the God language that was hyperbolic of Solomon is not so of the son. He is indeed God. And it is fitting that this one be king because he rules in righteousness and justice. This was the vision for the Davidic king, but a vision never fully realized. This king has been anointed with oil. He is the Messiah, the anointed one. So again, we see that the son is far superior to the angels. Then in the sixth quotation, our author reiterates the son's eternal status, but now contrasting it with creation, which is ultimately ephemeral ultimately um, temporary. Now here he quotes Psalm 102. So in verse 10, he also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens of the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed but you remain the same and your years will never end. This psalm addresses the Lord, meaning Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God. But with the ascription of the title Lord to the risen Jesus, our author sees this as applying to the eternal son, the risen Lord Jesus. The son was there in the beginning when the heavens and the earth was created. Verse two, we also, he is the agent through whom God created all things. They will have, and um, the heavens and the earth will eventually wear out like a garment. They will be changed. They are ephemeral. The world is currently corruptible, indeed corrupted, but it will be exchanged for a world that is incorruptible, that is imperishable, a world that will not wear out. The language and the imagery of Revelation, the new Jerusalem shall descend and heaven shall fill earth. And the risen Lord Jesus has already entered into this permanent world. In his resurrection body and in his ascension. And there the Son, the Lord, remains the same. His is an eternal kingdom. The Son remains the same. 
One of the best known verses in the whole of Hebrews is in chapter 13. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. We are not the same. We are changeable, we are unreliable, we still have corruptible, perishal bodies, but one day we'll put them off and put on ones that are incorruptible, imperishable. We shall put on spiritual bodies, not in the sense that they are non-material, but that they are filled and empowered by God's spirit as incorruptible. And the risen Jesus has already led the way, and he is one who is changeless. And when we hold fast to Jesus, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we have a secure anchor that cannot be shaken. We can be shaken, but when we hold on to that anchor, we are not shaken. The final quotation is on its own, but it echoes the first two, and it has the same introduction. Verse 13, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Here the quotation is from Psalm 110 verse 1. And this is the most quoted verse from the Old Testament that's most quoted the most number of times in the New Testament. This too was treated as a messianic psalm. And the Jews knew that no king of Israel had fulfilled this. Instead, they were now looking ahead to a future Messiah of whom this would be true. And the early church realized that it had been fulfilled on Ascension Day. When the risen Jesus ascended to heaven and took his seat at God's right hand, God has appointed him heir of all things. And so God will bring all creation under his rule. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord. Now, the opening sentence in the first four verses has been about the son ending with his superiority to the angels. And this chain of seven Old Testament texts has shown that this superiority of the son is in fulfillment of Israel's scriptures. The son is now seated at God's right hand, having finished his earthly ministry. He has an ongoing heavenly ministry, but he remains seated at God's side for that. Side for that. He, he is seated as the king on God's throne, and he is seated in his high priestly ministry of interceding for us. Then verse 14 provides the counterpart concerning the angels. They are not seated. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? All of the angels are ministering spirits. Though not itself a quotation, this does echo the language of the fourth quotation in verse seven. The angels are spirits. That is, they are part of the spiritual realm, the heavenly realm. They are in God's presence, but they stand in his presence. They stand at the ready, ready to be sent on official business, God's business. Even the highest category of angels, the archangels, stand in God's presence, ready to be sent. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah in the temple, he said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. Even though he was an archangel, one of the chief angels, he had been sent by God on a mission from heaven to earth. Five months later, he was sent from God again, this time to the Virgin Mary. 
And Revelation is full of angels. Uh, and we read there of all the angels standing around the throne in chapter seven. Chapter eight, we read of the seven angels uh, who stand before God to whom seven trumpets were given. Chapter 15, 16, we read of the seven angels who were told, go, pour out the seven bowls. All the angels in Revelation, they're on the move, being sent out, serving God. All the angels of ministering service sent out in God's service. Now, these angels of the Bible are not the cute cherubs of uh, Raphael's paintings, nor the angels of current popular imagination. Angels are awesome beings that evoke awe, even fear. Zechariah was gripped with fear. When the angels, angel appeared to the shepherds, they were sore afraid. And in Revelation, John was so awed by the angel showing him the visions that he fell down at the angel's feet to worship him. Not just once, but twice. And both times the angel said, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you. Worship God. The angels worship God and the angels worship the Lord Jesus Christ enthroned at his right hand. And so do we. The angels are sent out in God's service for the benefit of those who will inherit salvation. They're sent out for the benefit of us. We were briefly mentioned in the to us to whom God has spoken in his son in verse two, and now he brings us in again. The angels, awesome and mighty as they are, are sent out by God in acts of service on our behalf to bring about ultimately our salvation. He brings in us again here in transition, in preparation for the next paragraph, the first paragraph of chapter two, which will be his first exhortation to us. This paragraph here of the seven Old Testament quotations is exposition of the superiority of uh, the son to the angels, idea that was introduced in verse four. He's expounded that and will then transition to an exhortation to us that we'll look at next week. God has given the son all things as his inheritance and the son has inherited a superior name. That's verses two and four. And now we have something to inherit, salvation. But wait a minute, you may say. I thought we had already received salvation. Now Christ has accomplished purification for sins. Uh, that's why he has been able to sit down at God's right hand, his work done. And we have come to Christ, but this is the beginning, not the end of the journey. We have begun to follow Jesus. We have embarked on a journey, a pilgrimage towards God and his rest. And we need to follow the path faithfully. We need to follow Jesus faithfully. And we do so by setting our eyes on Jesus, by having Christ before us. Here in chapter one, the preacher has put before our gaze Christ in his excellence and glory, Christ at God's right hand, he whom angels worship. 
and whom we worship also. We see Jesus. And we gather on Sundays to worship, to pay attention to God and to Jesus, to have Christ before us, to join the angels in worshiping Jesus. And then Christ is before us also in the journey. He faithfully completed the course set before him and has entered God's rest. And we now follow the one who is our pioneer, our forerunner, the one who has gone ahead of us. And we journey together and encourage one another to not lose heart, to not lose sight of Jesus. Today is Connection Sunday, part two. Uh, last week, the focus was on connecting with one another. Um, today, the focus is still on connecting, but it's connecting in order to engage in acts of service together, um, to serve together and be drawn together as we do that. So uh, after the service, it'll be an opportunity for you to go and learn about all those opportunities. We're in this journey together, and we'll walk along encouraging one another um, and encouraging one another to hold on fast to Jesus and keep our gaze on Jesus. We persevere in following Jesus. And there are dangers on the way. And the biggest danger is taking our eyes off of Jesus. And so the author intersperses his exposition of the superiority of Jesus with exhortations. And these exhortations contain warnings, the so-called warning passages of Hebrews. And the first will come in the very next verse, in the next paragraph that we'll look at next week. In this final phrase of chapter one, those who will inherit salvation shifts the focus to us in preparation for chapter two, which begins with a therefore. Therefore, we must pay the most careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. We pay attention to Jesus. We keep looking to him in front of us. We keep our gaze on Christ, Christ before us and we help one another to do that. Amen. Now, as you go and uh, connect with one another, and then as you walk through this week, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we worship, the love of God, who is for us in Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that is God's empowering presence in us, be with you throughout the week and forevermore. Amen.